0: Hey everybody, Melissa McKenzie, publisher of the American Spectator, here on the Spectacle with Scott McKay, the Raging Cajun.
1: Oh, don't no, don't do that, James Carville. Don't do that to me.
0: I'm doing it I, to you. I want
1: nothing to do with that.
0: I, I'm doing it to you because this is going to be a pro-Texas podcast, and you're going to have to like it. Okay. Um, that's okay. what's happening. Okay. That's what's happening. So. For all of you who don't know, uh, I live in Texas. Scott, of course, is from Louisiana. And we both kind of know what's going on politically in our states, as well as paying attention to national stuff. Scott, much more so than me for Louisiana. He really is an expert. I am a tangential paying attentioner type person here in Texas. Part of that is because we don't have, we're, our legislature is only in session for six months every 18 months. And so we don't have a continuous uh, local spectacle to pay attention to. There's a lot of back room dealing in in the time off from session, but it is like drinking from a fire hose for six months every two years. And so like, uh, so we have a, a part-time, no, no full-time, you um, you know, legislature in a very, very big state with very, very big issues. So I went over yesterday and Monday for the inauguration here in Texas. And so got to, I went on Monday to go to the, there was a like a mass, a special mass for public officials. Uh, The governor is Governor Greg Abbott, reelected for his third and final term um term limited and uh he's catholic and so it the 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 weather was unseasonably warm and dry and gorgeous waiting outside the church and waiting outside you know sitting outside for the inauguration was absolutely beautiful sometimes you're freezing to death outside sitting in the rain and cold but anyway it was interesting scott to me because the message because we're a Republican dominated state, you know, just like California's Democrat dominated any one party state, you will tend to have people in your own party start actually acting like the uh, opposite party. Or there' are people who were in the opposite party. We, you know, about 10 years ago we had just a like 50 Democrats switch to Republican uh, because they just simply couldn't get elected as Democrats in Texas anymore.
1: Yeah, we have the same thing here.
0: Yeah. And so they're still they're still in their heart of hearts Democrats, uh, in kind of mind and thinking. And then we had a terrible speaker of the House. I'm not he who shall not be named, he's not there anymore. And I'm not gonna say his name, he's terrible. And basically he was ticked off because the conservative, the freedom caucus in the the Tea Party caucus was what it was here in Texas back then. Um, did not want him to be speaker because he was terrible. And what he did is he redistricted Republicans out of their seats and gave them to Democrats. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so that, and then triangulated against his own party to get Dem- Democrat agendas fulfilled. All right. So it was, so when people hear about, you know, a state like Texas having all Republicans, well right that doesn't necessarily mean something always good well that joker is gone and some of the deals that, like, like lieutenant governor dan patrick made so the other thing to know about texas for those of you who are not in texas is the lieutenant governor is the head of the senate in texas and is very powerful he sets the agenda and he decides what gets out in out of committee all of that stuff it's very powerful uh George W. Bush was in that position before he became governor. Uh, Rick Perry was in that position before he became governor. And so the the governor is relatively weak in Texas. Now, one of the ways that Perry, and I'm giving all this preamble to set up what I'm gonna talk about, because it was pretty momentous what happened in the last two days. Um, Governor Perry really strengthened the executive The governorship because he basically told his own party he was about as conservative libertarian as you can be and he would just veto one after another the budget they sent him it would be like no we're not doing that like he was totally for the taxpayer but I remember one year when the, the GOP wanted to raise taxes yes that's true in Texas and he was like are you insane people do not vote for Republicans to raise taxes, right? So no, we are not doing that, cut the budget. Well, that got everybody grumbly, but it actually saved the GOP in Texas. Had they done what they'd wanted to do, it would have been catastrophic. So I I give all of this background to say that up until this session, the GOP has been kind of divided. The governor will have his priorities. The Lieutenant governor will have his priorities the, the house, the speaker of the house will have his priorities. And sometimes they're not anybody's priorities. This was the first time that I have experienced in Texas where everybody's priorities seem to align. And I think what has done it is one is these guys are term limited out, but two, uh, the contrast with all of these woke states is incredible right like and it has scared the ever living daylights out of average texans who are used to a certain way of having the state and so the um like the prayers from the they had a bishop from fort worth they had the pastor of a church real near my house, actually, in Montgomery, who's the, the pastor of the cowboy church, he gave one of the best prayers I've ever heard. But I would say that the unifying theme of these things was hold up. Are we a nation of free speech? Are we a state of free speech, of the freedom to practice religion, the uh, ability of parents to run their houses the way they want to, you know? because there's this kind of standoff that's coming between the state and the and the family. And it's in some places already, the family's already lost, like in California. And so it was really interesting to see over two days, the different politicians who spoke, including the governor and Lieutenant governor, some of the house members and whatnot at the inauguration and be united. And be united, not just on the economic things, which has always been good in Texas, but finally, and you might be if you're outside Texas you're like, what do you mean finally but finally doing school choice. It was the Republicans who yeah. who messed that up in the last two sessions. It was the Republicans who fooled around with the school the state school board and didn't understand how critical it was for Texas to hold the line on um, all of the textbooks and the curriculum and everything else that's being kind of monkeyed with uh, by these different, you know, histories being rewritten. And so our Texas legislature, Dan Patrick did this, um, actually weakened the ability of the state school board to make these modifications, right? Mm -hmm. Well, Parents are having a canary because over COVID everybody started paying more attention and already this, you know, the, um, homeschool movement, excuse me, was really strong in Texas, but now it's like the public school parents and everybody's like kind of paying attention. Hearteningly, everybody was on the same page. I don't think if, if this session goes forward, like I think it's going to, Texas will be protected for a while and move in the conservative direction instead of the liberal direction, which is what even under Republicans it have been doing. I know that sounds insane, but it's been particularly offensive because our country or our state, you know, should be conservative. You know, we that's who we vote for. That's what the people moving here want. The other interesting thing, I don't know if you saw, but Texas has a $32 billion, with a B surplus. Guess how in debt uh, California is. Their deficit is $24 billion. Right. I'm sorry, but that kind of sea change in money right. makes a difference. So they're, the in Texas, they're lowering property taxes <clears throat> and shoring up infrastructure because the numbers were in some ways truly frightening. They expect 20 more million people to be born, grow, and move here uh, between now and 2050. Right. And the, Texas, even though under Perry, he made infrastructure a huge priority because we had those droughts. And so he all of this money went to uh, creating like rainwater capture and you
1: yeah, all did a
0: bunch of reservoir work, and a bunch of reservoirs, all of that stuff. <laughs> and it's barely keeping up, Scott, because we've had so many people. And the right. people are talking about the grid, you know, having problems with the grid in Texas. It's not because of the weather. Yes, that contributes to it. We just have so many people coming so quickly right. that keeping up with it is just, it's just people.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. you add 350,000 people a year, which is what Texas added last year. Yeah. I mean, that's a decent sized city every year of new right. people moving in, which is, you know, I mean, I, it's, it's homes, it's schools, it's hospitals, right. it's roads, it's drainage, it's, it's all these different, you know, different things. Um, And when, you know, when you have cities that grow you know, the way Austin has, I mean, yeah. like 30 years ago, Austin was five, 600,000 people. And now it's a metro area of over 2 million, right. um, which is just, you know, I, I, like, that's a staggering demand on resources of yeah. a place um, to, you know, to be able to have affordable housing and, and all these different kinds of things. Um, you know, and I mean, Texas is, a, is a, a much more competent place to handle that kind of growth. Um, you know, if you, I mean, you can look at California's example of how they handled that growth really at the beginning and the the big push of California's population growth began when Reagan was governor. Mm-hmm. And then Reagan left office in what, 1975, I think it was, um, or 1974, um, or ni- January of 75, I think it is. And I uh, think there was a Jerry Brown that came after Reagan yes. or somebody like that, and mm-hmm. and like they said, oh, well, we're just not gonna, we're not gonna, um, you know, we it was an anti-development type platform. Oh, well, you know, we we're gonna stop building stuff. Well, the people kept coming, and right. so if you're not gonna build, you know, the infrastructure, especially in California, water infrastructure, if you're not gonna build those things, and people keep coming, then what happens is, is everything gets really expensive. And you have a whole bunch of people that are living in awful conditions because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I mean, like, and I can't remember what, what show it was over the weekend. i like, what's not one of the weekend radio shows that's like nationally syndicated. And they were talking about homelessness in LA and San Diego. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like, it was a perfectly reasonable, um, uh, uh perspective that this guy had. He was just like, you know, like, You choose to live in one of the most expensive places in the world to live. Okay. Nobody owes you a place to live in San Diego, right? Like if you don't, if you can't afford to live in San Diego, you don't get to be homeless in San Diego, right? Which is perfectly reasonable. The problem is, is that if your city is in demand, okay, you have to keep building houses in San Diego, even though... You're right. like, oh, well, you know, we don't want to do all this additional development. It's like, well.
0: Or go up with apartments or, or something.
1: Well, that and that is the answer if you don't want to like, you know, expand out into the desert or do whatever. Like point is, um, if you want to be a pro-growth state, which means having a tax code that is pro-growth and having a business climate that is pro-growth and having a regulatory climate that's pro-growth. If you want that, then, you know, you're going to have to pay attention to the infrastructure that all these people moving in are going to uh, demand. And right. Texas, I think, is is one of the few places I've seen, at least in this country, there's some other places, you know, like if you look at like Singapore and, and, and places mm-hmm. like that, what they, what they just like, we're way ahead on the infrastructure game because we're projecting what our population is going to be like in 25 years or whatever. Texas is one of the few places in America that's actually good at that. Um, you know, and it, even
0: still, they're struggling. I, I talked to and I'm not gonna say the guy's name. But there's a couple people who are in charge of bringing the grid up to you know, like to handle it. Right. He was the most stressed guy that I talked to, like,
1: well, 350,000 people
0: a year. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he was just like, That's I felt sorry for the guy. He, he was like, uh, you know what I mean? Basically, the heat wave that we've had through January, you know, we had all this cold and really, really cold in December has saved the power grid because it's moderate and people aren't using air conditioning as much and they're not using heat. And so like, the thing is, is that I, I was just kind of blown away by the numbers and what's happening. And when you come into Austin, and this is true in, in, uh, outside Houston, it's true. Like Going to Houston when I first lived here 25 years ago, there was like vast nothingness between just you know north of the burbs of Houston all the way to Dallas. Right. Now there's like no break, like there's yeah, stuff- from Houston to no. College
1: Station is is it's suburbs,
0: right? And then you go to Austin, and this is what Texas does that the blue states hate, but that has to happen. So you've got all these young professionals moving in. They don't have the money for uh, um, big houses. They don't have the money for whatever. So you have these apartment complexes and these little salt box houses, popping up everything, like bare minimum. But it's a place that somebody can have ownership and start and buy a house and build their wealth. They
1: stopped building those in California in in the 90s.
0: Right. And so like- you know, people are like Ew. a California go, Ooh, but for Texan people, it's a, you know, a it's, way a starter to, house. it's a starter. Yeah. I mean, I had one of those, I had a starter house and my husband and I at the time we gutted everything slowly, but surely as we could afford it and did the work ourselves, mm-hmm. sold it at a gain. That's how you build wealth, you yeah. know? And so like, I was encouraged, but I, it was it was like the the one thing that I will say is that you know for over the past twenty five years of Texas's growth, when I first came here, people were looking for a state with no state income tax, which te- Texas doesn't have, and lower regulations so they could start a business. Right now, people the new refugees from these blue states want that, but they also want to be assured that they'll have their religious freedom, that their children will not be indoctrinated in schools. right? And this is a challenge in Texas because the infrastructure is there already and it's entrenched. And it means rooting out the CRT stuff, the DEI stuff, the, the um, baloney in schools. You know, in right. elementary schools. So there's a lot of work to be done, and um, but I, I I'm happy. It, it's it's a good time. Uh, and the 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 juggernaut that is the Texas economy is just mind blowing. I had no idea. They were reading off the data, and it was like, holy cow! If Texas at any point fails, I think it's over for the country. You know, you know I it's just... over
1: for Western civilization.
0: Yes, it's over I mean, for like,
1: Texas and Florida literally right now are what are holding up yes, Western civilization. Yes. I mean from an economic standpoint, mm-hmm. from a cultural standpoint, like literally that is that is and I guess to a lesser extent you can throw Tennessee in there too. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: you know, I mean I like I pay a lot of attention to state legislatures, particularly in red states, mm-hmm.
0: because there are
1: so many good ideas that you can find floating through there. Yeah. Um and, you know, for, for a long time, and it was particularly economic stuff, Texas was kind of the gold standard. I mean, that like, you know, the, the policies that were coming out of Texas were just off the charts.
0: Right. Um,
1: but Tennessee and Florida are actually over the last I don't know, three or four years better.
0: Yes. I mean, well, like it, yeah. I mean, what they do in
1: Tennessee is it's I mean, it's it might actually be better than Florida. Tennessee is phenomenal.
0: Well, um, let me cut you. I'm sorry to interrupt. You. Yeah. One of the things, so I'm friendly with some of the governor's staff, okay? I'll just say that so I can keep it broad so you don't nobody knows who I'm talking about. And one of them and I, and I is a dear friend of mine. We we're having a conversation about this very thing. And she was saying, well, I can't understand why people got so mad at Governor Abbott about the masking thing. And I said, no Texan wants to hear a story coming from Florida, coming from Tennessee, coming from anywhere but Texas, that Texas isn't leading the way on freedom and is the vanguard. And I said, it's offensive. And I was like, you don't know about it because you're in the mix of it. But I'm out here watching what other states are doing. And I don't want to hear that yeah. Governor DeSantis has done something we should be doing in right. Texas,
1: right? I mean, I so, feel like Abbott I think, gets a little bit of a bum rap, yeah, because of Ron DeSantis and Bill Lee. If those yeah. guys weren't around, Greg Abbott's like, Oh, this guy's the best governor in the country, right? But well, Bill and Lee and is Tennessee and, no, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm not right. saying it's not good, I'm just saying, yeah, you know, Bill Lee and Ron DeSantis have been both of them winning right around the same time, like 2018, right? Um, those two guys were. Uh, like, I mean, they, they came in, their first terms were just off the charts with the policy moves that they made. I mean, I, like, I go back to um, the uh, the CRT debate in Tennessee, which was mm-hmm. two years ago now, I
0: think it was. Okay.
1: Um, and I mean, they they passed, a, like, a, it was a CRT ban, okay? Right. And I mean, the backlash when that bill came out all of the newspapers in tennessee you know the black caucus i mean mm-hmm. they you know nathan bedford Forrest rides again like it was like the whole right. They, they, right. They, i mean they poured it on as thick as they could right right and the tennessee legislature which is like three quarters republican okay right didn't care did not care you could not the nashville newspaper makes it the tennessee and writes is "Oh, these guys mm-hmm. are a bunch of clan members and these guys are like yeah Guess we're going to get our money's worth it. And they ran that CRT bill through right in a week. I mean, they just crushed it. And I mean, the, the yelling and screaming was over the top. And then that bill passed and Lee signed it. Done. I mean, done. That was it. You know, and now. Um, well, we know, had you-
0: that two years ago, too. Scott. I- they passed the CRT. But the thing is, it's like when we have guys even in uh, what's his face in Virginia, Young kid, uh, huh? Young
1: kid, Glenn Young,
0: yes, yeah, Glenn Young kid. He's held the line, like, mm-hmm. he's whole. I, I, I gotta say, I'm a little shocked, yep. but he has been holding the line on the education stuff. It's what got him elected, it's what that's got really him elected, bested. yeah, and he's doing a great job. And I, I yep. and I made the point that I don't want to be bested here in Texas by right. Virginia, that's a purple state, right. No, so like, I do think that this, thank God, though, right thank God for the, you know, what's happening. And cause you're right. And the, the sense of like, if, if Florida, Texas, Tennessee, some of these States, if we fall, it's done. Right. Like, and, and the thing is, is like the, all the pastors and like the Bishop's prayer and everything, they all were praying in those terms. Like, please, this is it. You know, yeah. this is it. And there is that kind of sense which I uh, finally, you know, it's like, I don't know why it's taken so long, frankly, for some of the conservatives, um, and the Republicans to get where we're at, but they seem to finally be getting it. I'm hoping.
1: Well, like, I think it's a, and I've said this for a while. I think there's a generational shift within the Republican party. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, boomer conservatism okay is like the george w bush mitch mcconnell flavor of it which yeah. is you know u.s chamber of commerce does no wrong we're you know america's you know the business of america is business and like that kind of old school you know right. where it's purely economic conservatism mm-hmm. we don't like we'll pay a lip service to religious conservatives Right. right, but we're never really going to fight on that because that's how we lose everybody else, um, and and so you just surrender, surrender, surrender on the cultural issues, yeah. Which emboldened the left because the mm-hmm. old school, you know, like like liberals um, were pretty circumspect in uh, in retrospect about how much they would push on the cultural stuff. Yeah. Right. I mean, that damn really started breaking in the 90s. Mm-hmm. But prior to that, like, you know, you didn't see people going, you know, full on for like left wing cultural causes, whether it was a gay marriage thing. Oh, or, right. Like they were they were careful about that. Safe,
0: stuff. legal and rare. They right. weren't talking They're, openly right. like they, about there was not a lot of
1: cultural radicalism until yeah, I, right. my theory is that it was critical race theory, which was basically invented at Harvard Law School by a guy named Derrick Bell, who was a mentor of Barack Obama in like mm-hmm. 1992, I think is when the, he wrote the first critical race theory book. And yeah. once they married critical theory to race, like the, the, that was when like, okay, now, now we're cooking with gas, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which apparently you're not supposed to do anymore. But um, so anyway, like, but that was, but it was, Really, prior to maybe the mid '80s or mid '90s or so, or or so mm-hmm. like the left was—I mean, they would push, but it wasn't over the top, crazy right, like right, right, stuff. Right. Where you know, like we're we're you know, they're trying to normalize pedophilia now, and the rest yeah. of us like, ah, gross, right? But anyway, right. The, like so, um, to a large extent, when religious conservatives would talk about the culture war. Mhm. sort of the boomer bush republican, you know, crowd, oh, they, you guys are, you know, y'all are w- like way out on a limb or whatever. And that mm-hmm. was a credible argument that you could make. Right. Right. I mean, you know, it was like, well, abortion didn't really ruin the country. So if we just sort of hold the line on that and not go on right. offense, we you know, it's not icky and whatever and like you could make that argument. Mm-hmm. The problem was, is that because you didn't offer any resistance at all to the left during that time, mm-hmm. they got more and more emboldened and they started insinuating themselves into all of these different things. The schools being the most obvious mm-hmm. deal. And it started with the universities and, the, and conservatives did nothing whatsoever to, uh, to push back on you know pre-woke, pre-wokeness. Before it was woke, it was politically correct right? And they they didn't push back on political correctness in the universities. And instead, you had all these, and, you know, Texas was probably one of the worst offenders on this, Mm -hmm. was you had Republican legislators who got it in their head, look, all this money we've got, throw it into the colleges, okay? Because Mm -hmm. here's the deal, they're going to churn out a whole bunch of white collar, upper middle class people who are always going to vote Republican. And this is how, like, this is how we, the Democrats want to bring the immigrants in. And that's how they're going to change the electorate. We're going to change the electorate by putting everybody through college, right? Mm-hmm. The problem with that was that you did nothing to pay attention to what you were spending the money on. So you inflated the budgets of all of these, particularly public colleges and in red states, this, this is like particularly thing Mm -hmm. And of course, the blue states were already doing this. Mm -hmm. Um, And like they had way more money than they knew what to spend. There were only so many engineers you could train. Right. So they took all this money and they created an African-American studies program and a women's studies program and a gender studies program and all of these various different, you know, something studies curricula. Mm -hmm. And then they hired up a bunch of diversity coordinators and vice chancellors and provosts and whatever people who like had nothing in the way of administrative skills like these were just like basically pencil pusher or paper pushers but they had you know like they had an ideology it was like well let's just hire up all the woke people because we've got the extra money to do it and you know build this sort of faculty club culture that just gets more and more radical because there's grant money now that they can all get grants to study this and that and all of a sudden these universities become woke indoctrination centers on Republican money that came from state legislators in red states in in large measure, but even in purple states, Republicans were all on board with paying this money into these colleges and not getting what they thought they were going to get out of it because they didn't pay attention. And To this day, you do not see Republican state legislators. If you want to go to the folks in Texas and um, push them for something, the, the answer is, okay. I want to audit these public universities and I want to see where the money's being spent. Right. I want to know how many, you know, provosts you have at Texas A&M and UT and, you know, all these other, like, I want to know uh, how much of this money is being spent legitimately on woke indoctrination. Cause guess what? We're going to do a tax cut and this is how we're going to pay for it is we're well, going to start here, here. your budget because you don't need the money if this is what you're spending it on.
0: Well, okay. So like, if you look at the amount of this happens in two places where there's a ton of inflation. One is in healthcare.
1: Yeah. So you
0: have doctors oh, no, and right. it's like a flat line and the administration is like boop. Right. Same way on college campuses and right. in high schools and stuff, you have educate, ed, you know, teachers and professors like this, administration like that. Yeah. That's and right. so you have all of these special interests, you have all of these DEI uh different professionals, and and it's all a scheme to employ leftists to indoctrinate your kids. Absolutely. I mean, and then and then you look at the fees that they're spending and where the fees go to. Mm-hmm. And and it's a cornucopia of leftist causes that yep. are being paid by the students' activity fees. So, like, and that's just one thing and then you have the actual textbook so like i was talking to someone who's an expert here in texas on this she was uh at one time on the uh, state school board and we're talking about uh how the ap exams how none of that is being really looked into
1: oh the ap exams are are an exercise in wokeness these days it's unbelievable yes
0: well so like you know who teaches the economics class who's who's the name on the econ uh AP uh class uh curriculum Paul Krugman So that guy is making a crap ton of money for having his name on the textbook right. and teaching baloney he, the guy who's wrong He's about everything Chinese economics Yes exactly and so you've got you've got all of these different sorts of uh lefties who are it's just graft. And so uh, there's so many ways that all of this has absolutely polluted. And now we've got a whole generation because this last, probably the last 10 years in particular, the years my kids have gone to school, um, have been the worst. And unless you have a psycho parent like me who say, no, that's not true. Nope. That's not what the Magna Carta said. Nope. You know, here's, you know, you know, my, I'm the Debbie Downer mom who's the kids are like, oh, mom, you know, and, uh, you know, but you have to, if you're not on top of it, your kids brains are turning to mush.
1: Yeah. No, that's right. And I mean, I, you know, so and what you're seeing in a lot of these red states, um, you know, that are where there's still, the battle is still going on. Whereas in a place like a Colorado, for example, it's, it's just over. Yeah. Um, Yeah. What you're seeing in a lot of red states is the parents have gotten active and it's turned into, you know, politicians are, are getting active. And over the next five to 10 years, you're going to see a whole lot of this. And I'm, I have no doubt that, that Texas is going to be a leader. I think Louisiana may be shortly following suit because there's a mm-hmm. lot of movement for this here. Um, is, you know, look, I, I, like if we can't save these institutions, K-12 education, for example, then we're just going to we're going to dump it. Right. And You know, money follows the child education policy. Yes. Uh, doing something totally different on higher education. Like you're starting to see those conversations really taking place. You know, like going, like, look at Florida. Ron DeSantis puts yes. Christopher Rufo on the board of, mm-hmm. of Regents in, mm-hmm. in Florida. It's like the, you know, and all the, the news media over there goes, absolutely. You can't put that guy. He, who is he? And it's like, Oh I'm sorry I didn't put the president of some freaking bank in Miami on the board of Regents like I'm supposed to I actually got a guy who knows about this stuff. Right. And we'll do something about it. Right. You know and of course that is ultimately the direction that a lot of this is going to go which right. is you're going to start having subject matter experts getting appointed to some of these boards. Yes. Because you know the, the old model of this is how you reward your campaign uh, contributors like doesn't work anymore when it's not just managing some institution that runs itself because right. the institution's off the rails. And if you either have to save it or destroy it, but what right. you can't let it do is you know, continue to metastasize and do damage. So you go and you put a Christopher Rufo on the Board of Regents and the guy goes to war yeah. against the woke idiots that run the colleges. Right and and you know either he you know either he drags DeSantis down, which at this point can't happen, or he wins, and all of the woke idiots have to go because he you know he gets them all fired. Um, and like this is a like an it's a you know it almost sounds like an oxymoron to say this is what activist conservatism looks like, yeah. which is no, we're going to roll this back. Um, and you know you start and this, it takes getting
0: in so, yeah it takes getting into the institution. We cannot yeah, from the well, outside it, right. make the change. Like we have to we have to take on this beast and, and the biggest problem on the right is the lack of courage. Well, you it's know the, the lack th-
1: of interest too. Okay, like for right. example, I'm gonna and I'm gonna draw on because we're talking kind of state level stuff. I guess this is the state level podcast. I this is know,
0: the state level podcast. The, yeah, I
1: guess. So um like here in Louisiana, for example. Um, and I don't want to get too far in the weeds in this, but uh, so Bobby Jindal uh, was the governor of Louisiana for eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of his term, John Bell Edwards, the Democrat, won, and he's in his last year as governor of Louisiana now. Uh, and we're fixing to have a Donny Brooke of, a, of, a, of, a, of a, a gubernatorial election this fall. So Jindal um, kind of was sort of a policy wonk, boy wonder you know, he goes in office and, you know, he's going to make all this, you know, conservative change. Um, and one of the things that he wanted to do was he wanted to turn LSU in Baton Rouge into a big economic generator. Jindal had worked for Mike Foster, who had been the Republican governor, um, not immediately before Jindal, uh, but he had, he had eight years. And then Kathleen Blanco, the Democrat was in for four years. Yeah, and after she terrible. destroyed, destroyed mm-hmm. the K- Katrina recovery. She couldn't even run for re-election, And so Jindal basically went in with almost no opposition at all. Um, so he wanted to do a lot of what Foster had done, which was to promote LSU as an economic development vehicle. Like in other words, you know, get a bunch of smart people on that campus and like let it percolate and then see how many businesses spin off out of that. And there've actually been some, you know, uh, uh, some notable examples, you know, If you've if you've driven by a Raising Canes, for example, Mm -hmm. the fried chicken uh, chicken uh, tenders place, that's a Baton Rouge, um, that's a Baton Rouge thing. That Mm -hmm. I mean, it was you know a bunch of people went to LSU and got started. Like, hey, you know what? Let's open up a restaurant right on the north gates of LSU, Mm -hmm. and let's serve greasy fried chicken tenders Mm -hmm. to the drunks coming from the campus bars. Mm -hmm. And it blew up and it it just so happens, Raising Cane's is like really good. So like it's all Mm -hmm. over the country. And then my my kid's like
0: favorite chicken place.
1: Oh, Raising Cane's is fabulous. Okay, and I'm not just saying that because it's from Baton Rouge, it's just fabulous.
0: Um,
1: So, and like another example of that is Walk On's is a restaurant chain that's like everywhere now. And that got started. The two guys that started Walk On's were walk-on basketball players at LSU. Mm -hmm. jack warner and brandon landry ended up they created this restaurant chain drew Brees went and invested in it Mm -hmm. next thing you know like they've got there's a walk-ons everywhere and it's you know it's a it's a kind of a an applebee's type thing but it's Mm -hmm. a sports bar themed deal and it's fine it's a fun place i love walk-ons anyway like that came from having a bunch of like really bright entrepreneurial people that got attracted to go to LSU. Mark Emmert, who just, I guess, finished as the, uh, or is finishing as the uh, chair of the NCAA, was mm-hmm. LSU's chancellor. And he wrote the gospel about, here's how you create a really cool university. You have like great athletics and you do all of these things and make the students really want to come there. And then you bring in professors in um fields that are very economic development oriented. Mm-hmm. And this is how you can turn your university into this dynamo. Kind of like the research triangle in North Carolina mm-hmm. generated a lot of economic development. You could say that about UT and Austin has done that. Mm-hmm. To a lesser extent, a and <laughs> although most of it kind of came to Houston. But I mean, you know, there's there's plenty of examples of how this. And so Emert built a model to do LSU in that same vein, okay? Um, so Jindal came and said, okay, you know, we need to do something similar. Um, and so they went out and they hired a search firm when they had an opening for the LSU president position. Uh, and they said, look, we want the next Mark Emmert. Um, but the deal is they don't have a lot of Mark Emmerts running colleges. Okay. I mean, what you have is Hardcore leftists, there's a different thing. And I know I'm dragging us into the weeds, but I think if you care about policy, this stuff is actually interesting. So the other thing that Jindal did, Louisiana has a scholarship program that pays for college tuition for bright kids. It's called the TOPS program. It's the Taylor Opportunity, I don't remember what the P is, scholarships, Mm -hmm. TOPS. All right. And um, generally speaking, anybody who has the grades to get into LSU has already qualified for tops. So essentially if you're in state and you get into LSU, you pretty much get your, at least most of your tuition paid for, okay? Um, And so Jindal looked at that and he said, and Louisiana has 14 public four-year colleges, which is way too many. Like Florida has 14 with like five times the population. Mm, Okay. mm It, but this is because you know they built all these junior colleges in all the markets around the state, and the state legislature, the state legislators in those markets eventually found their way because there was oil money. Let's make Nickel State a university. And so mm-hmm. like Thibodeau, Louisiana has this university right. that's six thousand students. It's like, what are we doing here? And the weirdest thing is this is about as casual. I'm just as laughing
0: it. because you're, you're freezing up a little bit, but I'm just laughing thinking about Thibodeau because people are like, if you Thibodeau? it's an
1: awesome little town. Okay, it really is. But
0: it, the emphasis on little though. It's so. little,
1: it's, I mean, it's 30, right. 40,000 people live in Thibodeau. Anyway, yeah. so they have all these little colleges and it's impossible to consolidate them or, or get rid of them. It's impossible. And Louisiana is about as Catholic a state as you can get. And mm-hmm. yet there's like, one Catholic college in the whole state, which is that right? What's that?
0: I, I didn't realize that.
1: Yeah, I mean, like Lafayette, Louisiana, is a very Catholic place, right? And there's tons of oil money in Lafayette. You would have thought that somebody would have put a St. Agnes University or something, sure. and it was never done because there was a University of Louisiana at Lafayette oh. there, and it was it's like a classic case of crowding out, right? You mm-hmm. have all these public colleges. So anyway. You know and a lot of these places are struggling they're little bitty schools that you know it's like it's basically a community college but it's a four-year school and we're right. wasting all this money and so this has been sort of a, a structural problem with higher ed jindal was like okay i can't just go bring a bill to get rid of grambling state university which we don't right, need, right? like i can't do it it's impossible i can't get rid of you know lsu and alexandria which has like mm-hmm. 2,500 students. It's like, how can you run a public university? with it? right. Louisiana, it's actually Louisiana Christian now. It used to be Louisiana colleges in Pineville, right across the Red River from Alexandria, which is a private school that's getting mm-hmm. crowded out by the LSU, you know, what used to be a junior college. So he's like, all right, so here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna start funneling the money into TOPS and I'm gonna start dumping the general fund money to the university. And so you if you want your little whatever directional school to get funded, you've now got to be able to attract the top kids who are the ones that ought to be going to college rather than just being some little kind of crypt school for, you know, the local yokels who are going to go there and drink for a year and then go work offshore or whatever. Right. Right. It's like that's a waste of the state's money. So we're going to do it this way. Well, they didn't message it. All right. Um, and they, because it didn't really pull that well, they knew it was good policy, but it didn't pull that well. So they just did it without talking about it. Mm -hmm. So the narrative then was that Bobby Jindal was destroying higher education in Louisiana Mm -hmm. because look at what he's done to the general fund money coming in. So they, they're looking for a, a, a new LSU president and they go, you know, get the search firm, they bring in candidates or whatever, and they end up hiring this guy named F King Alexander, which is a, like, he ended up at Oregon State and they ended up firing him after, the, after that based on something that would happen at LSU. I mean, we all just called him F King Alexander, um, which was very descriptive of what he was. But the deal was this guy was at Long Beach State and he was political, okay? Like the whole time he was at LSU he was trying to get a job in the Obama administration. And he had written a bunch of white papers about how states have got to support higher education through their general funds. And I remember having a conversation a couple of years into this guy's tenure at LSU, when he had sent the students to the state Capitol to demonstrate for Uh tax increases to pay for higher general fund spending at LSU. All right. Mm -hmm. And, so I'm at some big confab and I end up running into the guy who at the time was the president of the LSU Board of Supervisors. And this guy was distraught because he can't believe what LSU's, you know, school president had just done. And I'm like, did you read his white papers? He said, what are you talking about? I'm like the guy wrote three different white papers about how general fund money is the preferred way to fund higher education and not tuition, even, you know, with a scholarship program like TOPS. Like he's just doing what he wrote down should be done. Right. I looked at me like I was from Mercury. He couldn't believe, he's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, don't tell me you hired this guy and you didn't know what he had written about higher education. And he's like, I'm like, oh shit. Like (laughs) you didn't even know because this guy was a banker. He had no, like he didn't know, like to be on the LSU board of supervisors for him, that meant you'd sat in the suite during the football games at Tiger Stadium and hobnob with the freaking, like he didn't, he didn't understand there was a job to do and it was never explained to him. Look, this is what you have to do if you're going to run Mm -hmm. LSU. This is our vision that you have got to Trump, you know, trumpet. it. I mean, to go from that. Okay. Mm -hmm. To Mm -hmm. Christopher Rufo on the board of Regents in Florida. I mean, I can't tell you what a massive sea change that is. That is actually getting into the game. Right. Because believe me, you know john bell edwards goes in and he starts filling the lsu board of supervisors up and one of the guys that he hires is a guy by the name of um i think it's james williams mm-hmm. who is a lawyer out of new orleans black guy but he's one of the people that pushed the hands up don't shoot me mm-hmm. because he was one of michael brown's attorneys okay oh, the no. yeah and I mean, no sooner does that guy come in and they start knocking down, uh, they 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 um, they they uh, they well, they took Troy Middleton, who was a World War II general uh, that had been the president of LSU, somebody found some letter he wrote to the president of the University of Texas about how to integrate black kids on the campus, mm-hmm. and basically Middleton's letter, and it, it, I'm. I'm I'm being nice, but he basically said, look, you bring these guys on campus, and you pretty much keep it separate, because God knows what's going to happen if you don't, all
0: right? right. which at the life time, it might be, be a- yeah. I mean,
1: so his whole thing was, yeah, okay, it comes off as racist, but it wasn't totally that. It was like, because they had a guy that, that like, there was one black kid on campus, and I mean, he got treated so bad, he left after a semester, he was like, screw this place, I'm gone. Right. Uh, and so Middleton, they like, asked him, all right, like, how do you do this? And he's like, well... You better keep it separate. And of course, that gets out. And the next thing you know, they pull Troy Middleton's name was on the big campus library. That's gotta go. And they got rid of Troy Middleton. They got wow. rid of a bunch of other people. And I mean, like it was this whole thing, they're gonna defenestrate all of the Confederate, you know, deal like and all the donors at LSU were like, What just happened? You're crushing the tradition of the school, blah, blah, blah. We supposed, and it was all like this. When the left gets their people in, oh, yeah. they get results. Okay. John Bell Edwards, who cast himself as, you know, conservative Democrat, mm. whatever, uh-uh. They yeah. I mean they went after everything that they didn't like. It was, you know, and LSU has been a woke indoctrination factory ever since. Bill Tate, who's the president of the school now, is a um, he came up as a, as an academician writing essentially um scholastic papers on how math is racist <laughs> like that's just how this guy got like that's yeah, how yeah you know it was like oh well, you have to teach, teach math differently to black kids and blah 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 it's a bunch of crap but yeah. that's how you move up in woke academia and this guy mm-hmm. did and ultimately the, the you know the woke board of supervisors that john bell edwards put in place gave you bill tate and it hasn't been as much of a disaster as people thought but it's a disaster that place is a woke indoctrination factory, like there's no tomorrow. Yeah. Which it's not special, okay? Like most of these, but like there are red state public mm-hmm. universities that are woke indoctrination factories because the infrastructure was not put in place to keep them from being that. And one of the right. big challenges this fall for the next governor of Louisiana is you've got to clean out that, you know, viper's nest at LSU. Right. Right. And I mean, like, it's not going to be fun because there's going to be an enormous amount of him oh, you're politicizing LSU. And it's like, huh, that ship sailed a long time ago. Right. right. And I, you know, I, I think you have maybe less of a problem at a place like Texas AM, for example, but you got a bigger problem at UT. Oh,
0: yes. that's
1: a woke indoctrination
0: factor. Well, um, the thing is, with all of that, is that you have enough, it's so entrenched that it's, anything less than total war is going to be effective. Right. Because there has to be, so if we're going to get back to the ideals, I mean, there's a statue of Martin Luther King on the, a beautiful one, in contrast to the ones that have been unveiled oh. all over. Um, yeah, be- the, That
1: new one that, oh my, we should we could do a whole podcast on how awful that is.
0: Evidently, because we're white, we can't have opinion on uh, a proto Martin yeah. Luther King. Uh, I mean, that I, was, I, I, this that was the white guy's
1: opinion. That was some. Um, I can't remember who it was. Um, some member of the family was like that. that get yes, like
0: Cor- yes, Coretta Scott oh, okay. King niece. But anyway, like, so we have this problem, but we have to be willing to fight. We have to have educated people who can go into, into the uh, conversations that are happening. And recognize them for what they are, because most of this starts out looking benign, but it's not. It's one thing. If you don't have the concept, the overall principles that merit matters, that um, and the the beef that I have going all the way to elementary education, where they want to like talk about uh, gender stuff to six year olds. You're not even teaching these children proper English math. Right. Our children are essentially illiterate because they can't read handwriting. Right. They can't read cursive. So we have this generation of stupid people who think they know everything because they've gotten awards just for showing up. Right. And it's completely toxic. And now these people are spawning because they're at that age and they don't even know how to um unindoctrinate kids because they have never been given any information so you know the these kind of interviews on the street, which is like ha-ha selectively edited well more and more that's just the average American and it's because they have been taught nothing right and and so like this has got to stop you know Europe we've watched go from this kind of each nation had its uh, identity, and, but there's been so much in the West uh, 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 kind of self-esteem issues. Ironically, as individual self-esteem has risen, everybody's smart, but the kind of the idea that the Western ideals of freedom of speech and freedom of thought and merit-based and w- a work ethic, you know, in America, we've got the Puritan work ethic, all of this, somehow that's a bad racist thing. If you work hard, it, it's you're it's white privilege. No, this is just an ideal. If yeah, you, well,
1: I mean, you know, it's like okay, well, tell that to the Asians. Oh, but they're white adjacent. It's like oh, now who's racist?
0: Yeah, exactly. Please,
1: tell me more. I mean, I'm like I'm so enlightened by this conversation that you have about right. how you know we have to do something about the racist people when you're clearly the most racist. Well,
0: person. and then explain that you know we have. Uh, a Black immigrant class who makes more money than the average American, white or Black. Yeah. So, I mean, this is not a reason.
1: Go go look up Nigerians because that's 100% the case.
0: Right. So, I mean, we have this situation where now we have just a generation of horribleness and the Republicans are as much to blame as the Democrats. We cannot just point the fingers. You cannot have these bloated bureaucracies. They are parasites on the body politic and they very much like any parasite will fight tooth and nail for survival if you're in the med- i'm doing a medical metaphor for all of you but parasites are really difficult uh to get rid of certain kinds are particularly um you know pugnacious they just will not give up yep. and that is an education or a health care or fill in the blank bureaucrat because they know deep down there's really no purpose for them and they're creating nothing of value. And so, and if they are pulled off the host, which is you, the taxpayer, they die and they don't want to die. They, so they have to keep creating these grievances and the, whatever the fill in the blank uh, regulation is to justify their existence. And
1: I had somebody actually explain the dynamic, this dynamic to me in, in, a legislative sense okay like so you're the state legislature and you're going to do okay paycheck protection okay and for for those of us that don't know what a paycheck protection bill is uh it's what they're about to do in florida and they've done in a few other states which is that uh the government will no longer do an automatic deduction of union dues from say teachers paychecks okay right. everywhere they've done this the teachers union collapses because like when they have to actually go and solicit the dues from the members in other words um convince
0: their members it's not just check a box
1: when you when you sign up to be you know to go work Mm -hmm. at such a school district and then you know like okay well you you join the union yeah i guess and they join the union automatically the dues come out and you never even see the dues coming out of your bank account when they didn't have to get you to go and sign up on a, you know, automatic debit form or bill your credit card or whatever, and you actually see the money, like union membership just drops through the floor, like 80%, boom, Mm -hmm. decline. And so the teachers unions throw an absolute fit over this. Here's the thing, probably most people in a given jurisdiction would look at that and be like, yeah, I don't think my money should automatically go to pay somebody's union dues. They can do that on their own. Like, yeah, I don't want to do that. And so probably 55, 60% of the population is behind something like a paycheck protection bill, okay? Do they care about it a lot? Not really. You ask them the question and they'll tell you, all right? Then they're going to get torqued up about it. I mean, it's right. just like, yeah, yeah, for that. Well, the teachers unions are torqued up about it. So when you bring that bill to the House Education Committee, right? And you're going to try to pass it through there. There are 500 rabid idiots in red T-shirts that say something terrible about the people that would vote to, to, uh, you know, no union busters ever, blah, blah, blah. And they're all like Mm -hmm. yelling and screaming and they're rude and they're like pretending they're gonna throw things and they're making faces at people and they start the committee hearing. And, you know, let's say there's eight Republicans and five Democrats on the House Mm -hmm. Education Committee. Two of those eight Republicans wet their pants oh my God, I will never right. get reelected if I move this bill to the floor. And they look around at their friends and they go, uh, uh, motion to table? Like, mm-hmm. are you sure? And they find there's something wrong with this bill. Some right. lawyer comes up and says, oh, but if you do this, you're in violation of Title 5, Section 6, and blah, blah, blah. And they go, oh, well, we can't be in violation of that. We can't amend this thing on the floor to fix that problem. So motion to table. Right. And Mm -hmm. away goes the paycheck protection bill that most people were for and that all of the folks that put money behind getting these guys elected to the legislature were like, we've got to have a vote on this bill. We've got to have a floor vote on this bill so that in the next election, we know who our friends are and who are who are not our friends. They're like, I can't do that to my people. Right. This is how it works. This is how an effective minority lobby can thwart the will of the public because most people have much more important things to do. And they're like, oh yeah, okay. Well, they should have passed the paycheck protection bill, right? They're not pissed off about the idiots that showed up and basically destroyed democracy in that committee hearing. Right, right. People. They're not mad about that because they just figure that's what they do, right? Mm-hmm. But this is how like a conservative, because we don't have any idiots in red t-shirts. I mean, we really don't. You have
0: like some. T- we have t- pol- t- we t- have t- polite, t- yeah. We have polite people who who you know knock on doors and talk. This right. the most egregious. We don't bring people
1: to committee hearings and intimidate right. state legislators. But like here, that's just not who we are.
0: It's gotten worse though, Scott. So, like, I'm going to give an example out of North Dakota with Kristi Noe. So, Dakota. one of, uh, South, Dakota. Yeah, South Dakota, South Dakota, South Dakota. So. So supposed cowboy conservative Christie, right? So what happens in South Dakota is that the the boys competing in girls' sports because they put their hair in ponytails and slap on some lipstick. Gets well, not passed even
1: that.
0: not even that. Yeah, I'm a girl today. Okay. I want to go see hot girls in the bathroom. So there's so there this bill gets passed House Senate flying colors. To stop that. A very obvious thing. Right. That a boy should not be in a girl's locker room, should not be competing against a girl. First of all, it violates Title IX. And no. Gets to Christy Noem's desk. She vetoes it. Yeah. Now, why does she veto it? Oh, wait, it? no, I have a better bill. Yeah, it's bull. Why she vetoed it was because the Pritzkers from Chicago, the rich people.
1: Who are pushing of the, all of this stuff.
0: Who, by the uh, way, J.B.
1: Pritzker showed up at uh, Davos
0: this week. Oh, big surprise. Yeah, exactly. So you have this fat dude in a dress who thinks he's a woman, who's also a billionaire, who's funding hospitals across the country for these gender clinics, all right? right. And he's giving money to all of the elected officials, including the Republicans, so they'll shut their pie holes when it comes to this stuff. So Christy Noem gets all this money all this funding for these small small hospital in South Dakota because the population is small, so they're not gonna have state-of-the-art facilities. She wants state-of-the-art facilities for her voters, right? So she takes this money from this psychopath and yeah, the people of South Dakota have this hospital, but guess what they also have? They have dudes in dresses in their daughter's uh, dressing rooms playing sports against them in a small, hardcore conservative state. Right. It's shameful, what she did was shameful, and she should not win anything because of what she did. Now, it's understandable in some ways because you're looking at all, I mean, everywhere from Vanderbilt University to uh, University of Southern California healthcare system has these gender clinics. Yeah, uh, I, I found out that uh, Texas Children's down in Houston was thinking about doing it, but that kind of, that, that kind of got, that shit got shut down once all of this came out. Yep. But you know, this kind of thing is how the left infects everything. Yep. Meanwhile, the billionaires on the right sit on their piles of cash and will let the free market do it. Okay. Well, the free market isn't free first off and hasn't been for a long time uh, in America. And second off, money talks bs walks and this is what's happening even in republican places Yeah. so we, we you have to fight fire with fire the right. democrats know that money will get them these things and that once it's entrenched good luck getting rid of it you know because they're going to buy yeah. ongoing funding for a hospital in rural south dakota or wherever they're doing this kind of thing and that's how you get radical leftist agendas through in the most conservative, reddest of red places.
1: Yeah. It's, it, you know, it, it, they come in and they intimidate, and our side doesn't want to fight because we've got... Well, they give
0: to money. Them. They don't even have to intimidate. Well, they, the they money
1: intimidates. Well, yeah. Okay? Because Christy Nome was more afraid of losing that money.
0: Yes.
1: And, you know, and being, you know, having South Dakota be blackballed by woke corporate America mm-hmm. than she was intimidated by her own voters. Yep. Right. Um, you know, and it's like, well, you know, whatever the problem is, is I can fix it in three years when I come up for reelection again. Um, I mean, yeah. and that's, that's the mentality. That's what these right. guys think. Yeah, and the true. donor class who, you know, inevitably when you're a governor and you start thinking about national politics, mm-hmm. you know, donors are going to be the people that you're going to spend more time with right. than regular folks. Okay. That's just kind of the way it is. It, it is. And the donor class is scared of all these fights okay like they don't want to get involved in this kind of stuff mm-hmm. because to them you know it's really just business and you know they're isolated from the you know the real kind of raw edge of the culture because they don't listen to top 40 radio and they don't well, they're all so older. A bunch of tv all the time yeah like they don't they don't see the you know where the battlefront is Cause they're right. in a gated community in a golf course and the people that they run into all the time are the people that are at the, they're at the club, you know, and the, everybody in that whole group. And look, I'm not criticizing. That's a great life and people should want to have it. Okay. But the problem is, is that you're not, your kids are not in public school. Okay. You're isolated from the crap that everybody else has to put up with. And when you're like that, it's real easy to just say, all I'm doing is buying politicians to keep the status quo, but they don't mm-hmm. understand that the status quo is crumbling. Right. And when they finally do get it, their response to this, because most of them are business people, which is, well, shit, I better make a separate piece with this because, mm-hmm. you know, in business, you do you deal with what's possible, right? And you go right. make the best deal you can make. Well, let's go make the best deal we can make. And the thing is, it's like, mm-hmm. there's no deal you can make with these people. When are you no. going to learn that? Right. And I think there may be To some extent, there may be a recognition on the part of some in the donor class on the right that look, okay, we're up against a Democrat party that simply cannot be bargained with. Those days are over. The age of political consensus in America is done and we have to fight. Um, There was, and this is two or three weeks old and I guess we should probably touch on this a little bit because it's coming up.
0: Well, Um, we also need to get going. So let's make it quick.
1: Um, uh, there was this letter that a bunch of donors to, to the RNC wrote, basically saying Ronald McDaniel's got to go. Right. And this was the whole point. Like we are up against a weaponized, radical, militant right. Democrat Party. And you cannot beat that with a Ronald McDaniel. She is old news, and we've got to have somebody who understands the fight as it is and is willing to go win it. And I don't know that these guys are the majority of the donors to the RNC, mind you, but it's there. And I think it's going to do nothing but grow, right. um, and so I'm a little hopeful that starting in the states with a Texas, a Florida, a Tennessee, a South Carolina, maybe after this election this fall, Louisiana could join that. Mississippi, mm-hmm. for example, is phasing out their state income tax and turning themselves mm-hmm. into more of a uh, of a of a Texas, a Tennessee, or a Florida. Uh, which, if Mississippi can do it, I, like I don't want to hear any excuses. At
0: all, <laughs> no, right.
1: right. Um, So you're starting to see it percolate at the state level. I think what happened in the House with the Speaker um, race is very encouraging. Okay, Um, so I think the Republican Party is changing. I think it's generational. I think it's Melissa, it's our generation that's beginning finally to come to the fore. Um, You know, like this is the Generation generation X story is would these boomers, please get the hell out of the way and stop, you know, allowing things to get worse. Right. Um, and we're like, I think we're more impatient, and we're more willing to go on offense. And you're beginning to see that because all of those Freedom Caucus guys that held out—they're all Gen X, right? None of these right. guys are Boomers, okay? Yeah. I mean, like right. Chip Roy is a Gen X guy who's willing to go to that guy's a warrior. Matt Gates—you mm-hmm. can say what you want about Gates—he's a warrior. Like he doesn't right. mind the fight; he likes it. Um, well,
0: Jim Jordan and, too, even though Jim he was,
1: Jordan is a Gen yeah. X guy and he's a warrior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you have. Mm-hmm. Warriors coming to the forefront in the GOP. In 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 Congress, Josh Hawley in the Senate is an example. Ted Cruz is another example. You have some of these guys. Rand Paul. Rand Paul, another perfect Ron example. Ron Johnson.
0: All they're but, all but, ben X and... more
1: of a boomer, but but he's on that he? I don't
0: know how so old I, he
1: is, but he's older, he's older than us.
0: Yeah. I mean, um, not that much though.
1: Uh uh Eric Schmidt, who just got there, Warrior, all right. Um mm-hmm. So, in, in and certainly a DeSantis and a Billy and, and um, uh, what's his name? McMaster in South Carolina. These guys are, they're, you know, they're fighters. They're willing to go on offense. And that is the way the party is moving. Okay. Which is why it's so irritating to see Mitch McConnell hanging yeah. around yeah. Um, when it's so far past the time for him to still be there. He needs to go, but the party I think is beginning to make, you know, some strides toward being, you know, the, a revivalist GOP. I'm going to drag that back up um, because, you know, I wrote the book about it. Um, and I think you're going to start to see this in future years. It's going to happen. It's too slow, though, is the it problem. It's the just not much time.
0: Late. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's the thing, it's the urgency. That's why to wrap it back up and go back to the beginning, I was encouraged at the inauguration for Dan Patrick and Greg Abbott because I felt like finally at long last these guys were getting it and right. and that, that they were so all of the crap that they gave to the tea party people who had the foresight to see kind of what was coming and and who were who were fighters and like we've got to engage this now finally it is coming to all of these ideas. I mean, for 15 years, I've been fighting for school choice. It's been something that has animated my uh, interest in conservative politics. Right. And it's finally coming to fruition and it should have been before, but at least it is now. And I think everybody is seeing why. You know, ten, when when uh, the No Child NCLB Left Behind was passed with Kennedy and Bush working on that monstrosity. And all of us were writing about it. And I was, and Michelle Malkin, I remember her just absolutely screaming about it. And I was screaming about it. And I was like, you guys have no idea what you've just done. And we were right. And they were all wrong. The establishment GOP was wrong. And in addition to being wrong, they ruined a generation of children's education because of their hubris, their top-down imposed solutions and america is dumber for what they did and that legacy is gw bush's and it should be hung around his neck because of all the terrible things that were done in that administration department of homeland security creating the the uh uh surveillance state that happened all of the evil that was begun there which you know i was screaming about Michelle, all of us were screaming about all the things that we saw coming have come to fruition. And now we're having to fight it back because these people thought they knew better uh, than the average like dummy tea party person who saw it all.
1: Yeah. Well, and and, and, um, when the tea party crowd stood their ground and said, we're going to reform how the house runs its business. Yes. Right. What was the establishment? Oh, my God, it's chaos. And you're going to create Hakeem Jeffries as Speaker of the House.
0: Right, right.
1: And if that's not the final, like, okay, now we don't have to listen to anything else you say because you guys are a joke. Right. Like that entire, I mean, we talked about it at the time. It's like, this is so stupid. Under no circumstances is that going to happen. Okay. And all of these, these weird scenarios that they drew up, they have been trying to sell this turkey to us over and over and over again. If you don't let us run things, then, oh, God, it's going to be so bad. And it's like, you know, every time we actually stand our ground and beat you, things get better. Things get better. And you start to have that mentality, and, and right. now you have the evidence behind it. It's like, no, I actually know this is true because it happened here, 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 to and what he did to Disney and on and on and on. Like, like what was Disney gonna do? Pull out of Disney World? And that right. was actually something National Review was hitting. Oh, they're gonna lose Disney World. I was like, how the hell are they gonna do that? Yeah, right? exactly. You didn't yeah. make that in a month. But they're not going anywhere. But Perfect. the whole point was, like, this was the panic. You can't tell a private company what and it's like that is where well, so it's played out. You guys have no credibility to run your they never think until so it's it 1989 anymore. It's over. And we're yeah,
0: they, wait there. They don't think the reverse. They don't think that a private corporation cannot tell voters what's good for them. No, it doesn't work that way. We are not fascists. We are a republic. And that means I vote for representatives to represent my interests, not Disney's interests, for me. So, like, yes, Disney is one constituent, but they're one business of many. And that doesn't give them the right to dictate how everything should be in the whole state of Florida.
1: Well, that's a, but that's a failing of the old Bush Republican. Oh yes, is that any corporation yeah. that that you know that where that has a lot of jobs is reflexively correct in anything that they do? Right. Um. And I mean, you gave up so much ground to the left by by holding to that mm-hmm. stupid philosophy. And, and, and really the only thing that shook them out of that, and I don't even know that they shook them out of it, but what shook the party out of it was the recognition mm-hmm. that, you know, wait, some of these corporations are BlackRock. Like some, some of these hey, corporations right. are Coca-Cola or Delta Airlines or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Starbucks, and they're explicitly left wing. So, you know, it's kind of like the, you know, the old Scanners movie where the heads explode. It's like, wait, does not compute. How could a corporation be evil? It's like, Google, like not Google it. Look at Google. Google Google said, don't be evil. And then they were. So like, Mm -hmm. what are you even talking about? And now that entire like corporatist Republican party is it's gone because there's no evidence for it to hang its hat on anymore, right? They allowed, and it's like, it's like such a testament to how ineffective these guys were. You were the shills for corporate America. You couldn't keep corporate America centrist, much less hard left. Right. If right. you were going to shill for them, you should have had some influence on them in return. And yet you didn't even ask for it. You just right. did their bidding. And the rest right. of us, no wonder we fell off of you because it's like, Hey, how stupid are you? You're supposed to. And it's like, well, yeah, but I got, you know, I, I took my bribe and it's like, Yeah, well, I didn't get anything. So why should I be joining you in this? And there's an entire breed of Republicans that I think is just going away. And a lot of them have seen the light and changed.
0: Well, that's the thing. We can't survive as a country with those Republicans not getting it. And they have to get it. So like if those Republicans in Texas, the big kind of corporate don't care types, if they don't get it now, they're never going to get it. They just the country out. is over and they've thrown it all away. But I don't think that's the, you know, the signs are there that people who were marginally paying attention before are really paying attention now. And that, that is, and the, and the interesting thing in places like Texas and Florida, the people coming to the state are not just coming for economic, economic freedom. They're coming for religious freedom and cultural freedom. Right. And if that doesn't, if they don't deliver on that promise, they are gonna be in deep trouble, all of these elected officials. And so finally the incentive structure I think is there where even the dumbest, laziest, big government Republican can see the writing on the wall. And I'm whole and so I think that's optimistic. I I, I came oh, away yeah. optimistic.
1: Well, and when you have a positive model, okay, of a DeSantis or a Bill Lee or a McMaster in South Carolina, I mean like. Or Greg Abbott, when I mean, you're starting to see like, wait, no, it works when you do it this way. Right. And this is a standard that you can meet. And if you meet it, you will get positive results and it'll, you know, and, and I mean, you'll be popular and, and your people will defend you, which is something that Republican politicians have whined about. for the, My own voters. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, because you don't yeah. earn it. Right. But, right. But this is how you earn it. and And I think that, you know, you're starting to see some of that happen. Um, where you can actually build some popularity as a Republican politician. And it's not just, you know, you're destined to be considered divisive. And and to stop people from saying that about you, you have to like kowtow nonstop to the woke left. Right. There's people starting to like, no, it actually doesn't matter what the Miami Herald says about Ron DeSantis. Like nobody cares, right? Like the Austin American statesman can hammer Greg Abbott all day long and it doesn't affect him, right? Right. And like Jeff Landry, who's I would guess is going to be the next governor of Louisiana, the Baton Rouge advocate hates Jeff Landry in (laughs) ways that are really not healthy, okay? (laughs) I mean, it's like, it's really scary how much they hate him. And he couldn't care less. He makes Fun of the advocate it's so funny his chief and i know i'm rambling but his chief of staff was testifying at some some committee hearing last year i think it was and the, one of the democrats is asking him he says well did you read the advocate article about bullies let me stop you right now he says i haven't read the advocate in eight years <laughs> and the guy says wait what you don't read the advocate he says there's nothing in there that educates me about anything he's like I have no interest that's a terrible newspaper it's the worst thing I've ever seen and I won't freaking waste my time reading any of it (laughs) and I mean the whole room was like (gasps) he just said that (laughs) and like and I know the guy's freaking superstar Bill Stiles is like yeah I don't read The Advocate and you shouldn't either and it was like it was so hilariously funny because like this was Jeff's crew and they're just like yeah, we don't read the app. Like we don't, we don't give a damn. And it's right. so, it's so different. You gotta read all the newspapers and find out what all the Democrats are saying about you because otherwise you're uninformed and it's like, eh, doesn't kill us. We don't read their crap, right? And you shouldn't right. either. And someday those guys are gonna be marginalized. It's like, oh, that's just another blog that's out. there. Right. Now they just lose more money than most of the blocks, <laughs> so, right. Right? Right. And at that point, okay, like now it's over because there's nobody for you to kowtow to anymore.
0: Right. And you
1: can actually govern and you can actually serve your own constituents. And yeah. we're almost there. We're not almost. there, but we're almost, almost there. there. Give it five, 10 years and we will have what we need. Now, I hope. the question is whether the country is savable in five to 10 years without a big switch now. So well, that's, that's an- be optimistic and pessimistic at the same time.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the question. But the thing is, is if we at least have some safe havens, that would be something. Yes. So on that note, I hope that you'll all like and subscribe our podcast. This is a different kind of podcast this week. Last week, we were happy, happy elves this week. We are um, focusing on the state level stuff and where I think the solutions are coming, because I'm hoping that we go back to a federalist system, a true one where the state's making all these different decisions and you do exactly what the settlers did and you move to the place that represents you and you create the kind of environment you wanna live in. That's federalism That's it. and hopefully we have that. Okay, well, thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. And thank you, Kate, for producing this. Uh, We appreciate your hard work. And um, until next time, we'll we'll see y'all.
1: See y'all next week. Remember, smash that like button and hit the subscribe button as well. And make sure you follow us every week here at The Spectacle Podcast.